Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hi guys, welcome back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. We're happy to have all our listeners with us today. I'm super excited, Jenna. Today we've got Dr. Aaron Curry from Crew. I think this is going to be one of those episodes where I learn a lot. Yeah, me More too. than the listeners, maybe. <laughs> All I know is that you're awesome and you do really cool work. And But I don't know a whole lot about your projects, which are primarily with polar bears, correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank you guys for the kind words. I'm happy to be here and I'm glad you invited me today. Um, but yes, my primary f- focus is on polar bear reproduction and that's what I study here at the zoo. Cool. So you work with Crew. We have interviewed a couple of the other scientists who work there. Your title is Reproductive Physiologist, correct? It is, yeah. So it's someone who specializes in the physiology of reproduction. How did you find interest in that? Like, I wouldn't have even known that existed. I didn't know that job existed <laughs> until I started working here, and I know very little about it. Yeah, and I didn't know going into college that this was even a possibility for a job. Um, probably like many others who end up doing things that are similar to what I do. I always wanted to work with animals and I love science and of course you think, well, I have to go to vet school. Mm. So um, for college, I I already knew I didn't want to go to vet school because I worked for a vet throughout high school and college, but I didn't know what other careers were out there where you could work with animals. Um, So during college, I took all the requirements and towards, I minored in wildlife conservation because I was always interested in wildlife and I also had a second minor in psychology because I thought I might want to study like animal behavior one day. Mm. Um, But at that time, my advisor discouraged me from behavior because he said there's no real jobs in animal Mm. behavior and back then I don't think there were. That's, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Mm. so, um, so I still had no clue what I wanted to do and it was the last semester of my senior year of college and I had one requirement left to fulfill and it was reproductive physiology. And it fit into my schedule right because I was working during college, so I could still take the class and go to my job afterwards. And um, I just, I really love the instructor who was really passionate about it, and he explained things very clearly, so I understood it. And um, I could start to see how I could sort of like marry these two interests of wildlife conservation and reproductive physiology to help study wildlife species and how they reproduce and help them to reproduce. Um, but by that time, it was too late to apply to grad school because it was my last semester, so applications had already closed. Mm-hmm. So I did an internship at the Audubon Center for Research of Endangered Species down at the Audubon Zoo. So it doesn't exist anymore, um, but back then they took interns, and it was mostly like animal husbandry type stuff. But at okay. the end of the day, we could then um, run down to the science building and sort of watch the scientists, what they were doing. So I got to watch um, like semen collection procedures and IVF procedures in the lab. Um, that really kind of cemented my desire to want to go on to study reproductive physiology. Huh. So you didn't want to go to vet school. You just weren't necessarily interested in the medicine side or the surgery or this. I think it'd be hard and sad at times. That yeah, part, that, or? it wasn't that part. It was um, a lot of it was the financial burden of it. So okay. um, vet school is very expensive. Mm-hmm. And I knew that vets didn't come out making too much money. And I wasn't um, I didn't come from a very wealthy family. So they weren't able to pay for mm-hmm. vet school. So that part was kind of scary to me. Um, so, so that was the primary reason. It wasn't the schooling though, but then you went to grad school, like, and that didn't scare you or no, is it? Well, grad school for m- most scientists, it should be free. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um, they offer, Hopeful. yeah, they usually offer like teaching assistantships or research assistantships. So that comes with a complete tuition waiver. So usually a hundred percent tuition uh. waiver and you get a stipend on top of that. So for me back then it was like $15,000 a year. So it's not a huge amount of money, but it's enough to pay the bills and to yeah. Yeah, for feed sure. yourself. Um, so I did that and grad school is very different than undergrad. You're not just like taking classes, you know, you're doing research, you're working in the labs. Um, it's a lot more flexible and you're focusing more on what you want to study and not, you know, like physics. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. There's yeah. no gen eds to cover. <laughs> I feel like I took so much chemistry getting a biology degree, more than biology. And I'm like, I will never use this in my entire life. And therefore I didn't think I really liked school. So I can imagine if I were studying like all the classes right. or doing the things I enjoyed I would like school more but I think that would be intimidating to go to grad school and, yeah but that's I'm glad you found that professor I feel like having somebody in your life that kind of introduces you to something that you didn't know existed or they explain it in a way you can understand right. and help you become passionate is it's always nice to have somebody like that yeah mm-hmm. I really don't if I hadn't taken that class I don't know where I would have ended up long term you know a lot of my classmates were looking into jobs in like the pharmaceutical industry because okay. people do a lot of um, like laboratory animal testing mm-hmm. but I did not want to spend my life doing animal testing yeah you know, that wasn't that wasn't for me I knew that so yeah I was kind of at a, a crossroads where I'm really glad that class came along and sort of gave me some new direction it worked out perfectly yeah is it hard I mean well I mean hard in the sense of are there many jobs 
Like, you know, they, they discourage you from one thing, but is this even harder? Yeah, that's a good a question. Yeah, so my grad program wasn't tailored to wildlife species. It was okay. all livestock. Hmm. So the people that I went through school with, some of them were, like, that school-bound. Um, some of them went on to work on farms and agriculture, like beef cattle production or the dairy industry. Um, so I was one of the people who wanted to go on to work with wildlife, um, but they advised me to always have a backup plan. Um, so my backup plan was to go into like the human fertility world and work in a human fertility clinic because okay. many of the same skills are applicable across species. Um, but that wasn't my top choice for sure. <laughs> so I'm really lucky that a job came along um, in the wildlife field doing reproductive stuff because there aren't that many jobs. And say, we yeah. joke that you yeah. have to wait for someone to die or retire to get a job <laughs> in this field. So you don't want to hope that someone dies or retires. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, that is the reality of it. And where did you go to grad school? I went to Clemson University Clemson. in okay. South Carolina. And awesome. I did my undergrad at University of Delaware. Cool. Are you from Delaware? I'm from Philly originally, okay. so not too far from Delaware campus. Okay, cool. And then what ended up bringing you to Cincinnati Zoo to work here at Crew? So as I was finishing up my PhD, I was starting to look at the um, zoo job boards because I really wanted to get my foot in the door at a zoo. And um, as I was getting close to defending, I saw that um, Crew had posted a position for a postdoctoral scientist. So it's like an extra layer of training after your PhD. Um, and I was already familiar with what Crew did and what all the zoo research departments did. So I, I knew I definitely would love to get my foot in the door there. Um, and I knew that they had um, programs with cat species. So um, Dr. Bill Swanson's um, Endangered Cat Projects and Dr. Terry Roth's Rhino Research. And I thought, oh, working with rhinos or cats would be amazing. I'd be happy working with either one. And the job description was kind of vague. It didn't really say what exactly that I, that person might be doing. And then on the phone interview, it kind of came about that they were starting this new polar bear research, and they wanted someone to work on that. And I was like, well, sure. You know, that sounds cool. I never yeah. thought about polar bears, <laughs> yeah. you know, more than a minute in my life, but it sounded like something I could definitely get on board with. That's, I mean, yeah, you don't think of working with polar bears and all in the reproductive physiology aspect either, I'm sure. And you didn't necessarily have experience with polar bears. So, like, how did you get the job? Or how do you start something like that? Yeah, so, uh, um, yeah, they offered me the position. I guess I had I had some different skill sets in things related to assistant reproductive technologies in livestock. So I could do artificial inseminations. I could do ultrasound exams. I knew how to take blood samples and analyze different components of blood. Um, I also had some experience with embryology, so um, like growing embryos in culture. Wow. So all of those things are like loosely translatable okay. to wildlife species, although every species is different. Sure. Um, so I think I already had um, some of the, the tools in my toolbox, if you would, to transition into this role. And I feel like at Crew there is a little bit of like overlap. Like you all do help each other out a little bit. And Absolutely. it's not like, obviously polar bears is your main research that you work with, but mm -hmm. you're helping out in other places as well. It's not just polar bears, right? Yeah. So I do, most of my work is with polar bears. Um, we are doing a little bit of work with other bear species like Andean bears. Um, then I also have a side project where I'm studying red panda reproduction. So red pandas are reproductively pretty similar to polar bears, but they're just a lot easier to work with because of their size and we can ultrasound them easily. They can't kill uh, you. <laughs> exactly. So um, so we've been ultrasounding the red pandas here at Cincinnati Zoo um, during breeding season and pregnancy season to see what we can learn from them that might be applicable to polar bears. And what was the big challenge with re reproduction in polar bears? Like, why were they such a keystone species to focus on? Right, it's a good question. So polar bears in the wild um, are under threat due to climate change, um, and they're losing their habitat. So there's um, more of a push in zoos to use polar bears as ambassador species to teach people more about the climate change. Um, but we're learning in zoos, polar bears don't reproduce um, as well as it seems like they should be. So what we're seeing in zoos is that about 10% of females that breed go on to produce cubs at the end of the year. So even though all pairs of bears that are put together, they seem to breed well, like it looks like they're doing everything normally, um, only about 10% of those females at the end of the year will produce cubs. And we wow. have no idea where the reproductive process is, fa is failing. Um, they seem to be cycling hormonally because they're, they're coming into estrus and they're breeding with males. Um, but polar bears, so they're seasonal breeders, and if they an egg is fertilized, it grows to the blastocyst stage, so only about two to 500 cells, and then it stops growing, and it enters embryonic diapause or delayed implantation. So the embryo just sort of stops growing, it floats around in the uterus all through the summer months, and then at the end of the summer and the early autumn, it implants in the uterus, and then true gestation or placental pregnancy occurs, and that lasts about 60 to 70 days, we think. So the fetus is growing about the same length of time as a cat or a dog, so 60 days, but the female can be pregnant for 8 to 10 months. Oh, wow. So for these reasons, it makes it really hard to, to study 
their reproduction because we have no way of determining whether or not they're pregnant at any stage. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. Sorry, that's like <laughs> so much. I can't believe you or somebody figured all of that out. I can't take credit for that. <laughs> and I don't understand the evolution, like why that would have, that's ever a thing. And uh, Embryonic diapause is, is weird. So about, I think they estimate over 120 different mammal species experience it. Wow. So it seems weird, but it happens probably more often than, than we recognize. We so had a wallaby here that wallabies. experienced yeah. that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so wallabies, all the bears, um, mustelids, like red pandas and weasels and skunks, um, seals do it. Um, there's one species of deer called the roe deer. Um, some bats do it. Um, and there's two different types of diapause. So one is called obligate diapause, and that's every individual of a species experiences it. Okay. So it, it always happens in a pregnancy. And the other one is called facultative, so it only happens sometimes, like wallabies. So they can wow. sort of suppress embryonic growth if conditions aren't favorable to support a pregnancy. So if they're like lactating or something like that, then they won't have a new embryo growing. So that mm. makes sense evolutionarily, like why... Right. But in general... Yeah, so in general, the theory is that delayed implantation sort of uncouples breeding time from birthing time, and it allows a fetus to be born at a time that's more favorable to their survival. Okay. So if polar bears bred in the springtime, and then that fetus, um, you know, grew up right away and was born at the end of the summer, um, there probably wouldn't be enough food to sustain that pair through early development. Okay. Um, but doing it, uncoupling it, doing it this way, now the embryo implants at the end of the summer, the female gives birth in like November, December, and by the time those cubs are ready to come out of the den in March, it's springtime, so it's a little bit more favorable to the offspring survival mm. at that time. Okay. So is this something that you see in species that live in kind of harsher environments it, it like is, that? It is, yep. So many okay. of the Arctic species, like seals and bears, undergo that. Mm. Yep. That's fascinating. And it then is. polar bears also have issues with pseudo-pregnancies, correct? They do. That's another layer. <laughs> you pick of... the trickiest. <laughs> yeah, there's not too much easy about the reproduction of polar bears. Yeah. So pseudo-pregnancy is when non-pregnant females will hormonally and behaviorally appear to be pregnant. So they'll have high progesterone that's indistinguishable from a non-pregnant female. They'll show denning behaviors. They'll build nests. They'll want to spend more time um, isolated and away from others. Um, and behaviorally, it looks like they're pregnant, but we can't tell the difference between the two. And initially, we were thinking, well, maybe these females aren't really pseudo-pregnant. Maybe they're just losing their pregnancy somewhere because mm -hmm. we, don't, we can't determine if they're pregnant in the first place. But then we started monitoring females that aren't housed with males, so no oh. way they can be pregnant, and they're still having these pseudo-pregnancies. So they wow. have this high progesterone, and they'll go into this, like, denning mode. So we know pseudo-pregnancy is real. Um, but we don't know what the real rate of embryo or, or fetal loss is relative to pseudo-pregnancy. Again, That's why does that happen? So many questions. Yeah, so and it's not just behavioral, it's physiologic as well, like you see the progesterone spikes and everything? Exactly, yeah. So we can measure, and we're at the point now where I don't think it's worth the time or the money to monitor progesterone because it doesn't tell us anything. So we can say, yes, her progesterone has risen, so she could either be pregnant or pseudo-pregnant, but beyond that, it's, it's not very useful. Mm -hmm. So is part of your project then figuring out a way to how to tell that polar bears are in fact pregnant? Yeah, so we're trying to develop a pregnancy test for the species. And as you can imagine, a 600 to 800 pound carnivore um, that you can't touch, um, <laughs> can't really get urine from too easily. So we're pretty much limited to fecal samples up to this point. Um, so I've spent like the last 10 years investigating other components of a fecal sample that might be like the pee on a stick test that women have that we could maybe <laughs> use in a polar bear. So humans are, are unique in that well, humans and other primates, and that they produce, the early embryo produces this hormone called HCG, and um, mom will pee it out, and that's how the pregnancy test works, so it detects this hormone. Um, but other species don't have a, a biomarker unique to pregnancy like that, that we know of. I've never thought about that. Or no one's that. looked at it, looked for that biomarker. Um, so we're trying to figure out, does a biomarker like that exist, and can we measure it in a fecal sample or a urine sample or a blood sample so that it might be useful for, for like a pregnancy test? Are you using, well, I don't know if this... Is there ever a time when you, a scientist or somebody, a zookeeper, has known, in fact, that a polar bear is pregnant, and then you're able to study their feces or their urine? Or how do you even know what to look for if you don't even know if you're studying... A pregnant yeah. female or yeah. not, yeah. So we usually do it retrospectively. So, okay. we'll sign, so if the female has cubs, we know she was pregnant. Um, if the female maybe was not housed with a male but still has that increase in progesterone, then we know she was pseudo-pregnant and that it wasn't a pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. So when we're doing um, our studies, we want obviously our pregnant group because they would have whatever marker it is that we're interested in, 
but our control group, our non-pregnant group, we have to know that they're not pregnant to compare the two profiles of the proteins or whatever it is that we think might be the, the key. Okay, that makes sense. And you have the keeper's help to collect fecal samples the yeah. entire time, and then after the fact, you go look back at the fecal samples? Yes. Okay. So all the keepers at all the different zoos in the U.S. and, and Canada that have polar bears, they've all contributed to some of our studies. Um, so we've worked with over 30 different institutions, and we've monitored over like 75 different bears um, for years, some of them. So some females we've monitored for 12 straight years, so we know exactly what their wow. fecal hormone profiles look like over time. Um, but yeah, the keeper staff are terrific with collecting these samples and you know writing dates on them, freezing them, and then shipping them to us two, three times a year so that we can use them for our analysis. How many samples? You've got thousands of polar bear samples then that you're collecting and We've got over 40,000 samples stored at crew. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So what is, we don't have polar bears here, so you're working with, well, currently we do not. Um, you're working with institutions all over. You do some travel, but what does your normal day-to-day -day look like? Like, what do you, you come to work and you're like, today I'm doing what? Yeah, so more and more it's um, sitting in front of the computer answering emails. <sighs> um, but it, my job, it sort of fluctuates seasonally. So right now we're in breeding season. So this is when we'd be doing like fertility exams and um, gamete collection and cryopreservation procedures, and maybe artificial insemination procedures. Um, but then those activities drop off pretty quickly by like the end of April. Um, in the summer months, um, there's not a lot of animal work, um, okay. but that's a good time. We can write papers, we can write grants. We're always looking for money to fund our studies. Um, it's a lot of writing, more than I ever imagined. Um, but it's 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 not like term paper writing. Like we're writing about things that we're really we're interested in, we're passionate about, and we're trying to like sell others, if you will, on our ideas and try to like get them on board to hopefully get, have these foundations give us money so that we can do our research. Yeah, yeah well that's definitely. good. Yeah, it's not something that you're not passionate about. That would be really hard to write about <laughs> all, the time. all the time. Yes. And then also, this is a side note, sometimes you mentioned red pandas, but you also help out in other ways. Uh, Dr. Aaron Curry was the one who did the ultrasound that just allowed us to announce baby's pregnancy. So is that something yeah. that's like fun for you? Yeah, that's a lot of fun. So, okay. you know, uh, all of us like lab rats, we get into this because we love working with animals, but we don't have opportunities to put our hands on animals too often. So when we're called to like come to an ultrasound on a hippo, like that's a fun day for us. Good. Um, especially <laughs> when we can see something like a pregnancy, even if it wasn't expected. Yes. Necessarily. <laughs> Oddly enough, the three of us in the room were, were there. Yeah. Uh, Mark was there and myself and Dr. Aaron, and we were... I, I wish there was a, a camera capturing my I wish there eyes. Were, I, I wish there was a camera capturing your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like trying to be quiet, but looking at Mark, um, and we're all wearing masks, so I can't even like mouth something, and I'm just, woo! We I, saw, I saw it just in your eyes. Yeah. I saw the expression. I knew what was up. But yeah. like for a split second, so a little backstory, there was, in, within our department, there was an April Fool's prank mm -hmm. about BB being pregnant two days prior. We did the ultrasound, it was at the third or fourth, whatever date that was. Yeah. So April Fool's was just a couple days prior, and there had been an April Fool's prank about BB being pregnant. So I was convinced that this was another April Fool's prank. <laughs> <laughs> we got Dr. Curry to come down and help us really sell this, this prank to Mark. Oh, no. Oh, but yeah, so I'm glad that that's something that's fun for you, because we often feel bad we're like putting something else on your plate or, no, no, you know, no. taking you from all of the other things that you're doing. No, it's fun to be part of things like that, you know, and to see your reactions to this pregnancy. And when it was very clear, we could see the fetus and the rib cage and this little thing wiggling around. Um, that, that's fun for me. Yeah. It, it's funny because we had done one the week before and we didn't find anything. We weren't necessarily in the right position or spot to find it. And I'm like, what are you looking at? How can you tell? Are you sure that's not a bladder how do you know and then the next week the following week when we did in fact find baby's uterus i was like yes i do not need your help this is very obvious so it's interesting how that works and don't get me wrong ultrasounds are still incredible i don't know how people read them for the most part but it was very very obvious that there was a little baby hippo yeah, in there. it's usually easy to give a positive pregnancy diagnosis by ultrasound because the fetus is there like yeah. it's clear um but it's always hard to say i i don't think i'll ever say she's definitely not pregnant um, because they, they can hide in there sometimes. And, yeah. Yeah. And all species are sort of, animal. especially a large animal with such a huge abdomen. There's so many different areas of the abdomen that, fe I was going to say feces, that fetus could potentially <laughs> be in. Um, so yeah, it kind of depends on positioning that day. And, you know, we kind of got lucky. Yeah. It was part skill, part luck, but. Is that something you could do with polar bears? Uh, is there a way, I'm, I'm sure 
it would take a really special polar bear and a lot of training to do it without them being sedated. If you had some sort of setup where they can stand up tall, have you done something like that? Yeah, so okay. our old female Barrett, who was here a few years ago, she's up at the Henry Vilas Zoo now. Um, we had her um, reliably trained for ultrasound throughout the years. We worked with her and she would come right over and we had her, um, she would put her paws up on the, on the mesh. So of course we would never share space with the polar bear. So it's always done across across the mesh. So she would put her paws up and sort of push her belly into the mesh. No way. Um, and we could open up this little window and we could put the ultrasound probe on her. And I was able to find uterus a few times. Um, but then around the time where their progesterone starts to increase, around the time that we would actually be able to see a fetus, polar bears go into this strong denning mode. So uh. that all they want to do is sleep and they stop participating in training uh. sessions. Um, so it didn't work with her. She didn't want to participate. And then the female we had after that, Anana, same thing. So she would reliably participate. And then, you know, we'd bring out the peanut butter and the marshmallows, anything that would maybe entice her to want to participate. But, you know, her brain was somewhere else. Oh, dang. Yeah. So you finally get to the point where if there was a pregnant female, you'd, yeah. you'd probably be able to see it. But they're like, no, I'm, I'm going to rest. Yeah. <laughs> it's denning time. Is it hard with all of that fur, too, to... To see something on it an is, ultrasound? Yeah, so for the ultrasound to work, it needs to transmit those sound waves um, through a substance that's not air. So that's why we use the ultrasound jelly. Um, and just for those furry animals like the red pandas and the polar bears, it just takes a lot of jelly. Uh -huh. So, but training the animals to do that is important because a lot of them don't like the sensation of jelly in their fur. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of the training process is getting them used to that feeling, that sensation, and then having a probe pushed against their belly so that it won't bother them and they're happy to participate. I feel for those keepers because we've all been there in that moment where you work so hard on training this behavior and then the time comes where the researcher from crew or the vet staff is there to actually use the training that you've built and the animal doesn't participate yeah. <laughs> and it's so demoralizing. And especially something with an ultrasound where you're just like on pins and needles waiting yeah. to see and find out, that would be really tough. What does a polar bear feel like? What is their fur on their belly soft? It's kind of rough. Okay. Um, so they have two layers of fur. They have an undercoat that's a little bit more soft, um, with shorter hairs, and then they have these longer guard furs. Um, and they're kind of rough. They're not like as rough as a broom, but they're um, they're not very soft. Okay. Mm, a little coarse. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And then you did work with beagles, right? We did. We so, told us about that project. Yeah. So this was part one way that we tried to diagnosed pregnancy. Um, so I started reading about those sniffer dogs or the odor detection dogs. And they're used a lot in like wildlife conservation to find poop from a certain species like jaguars in the jungle, for example, rather than comb the entire jungle, it's easier to train a dog to find that sample for you. So that saves a lot of time. Um, and in the medical field, they were training dogs to diagnose cancer. So dogs could like wow. sniff a sample of the one study, I read a few different studies, but one, um, the dog was trained to diagnose prostate cancer from a urine sample. So the dogs wow. learned to distinguish these samples, um, the samples from the patients that had cancer versus those that didn't. The one that really blew my mind was they trained these dogs to diagnose um, using breath samples. Um, they could diagnose lung cancer and even distinguish the lung cancer from patients with like emphysema and other lung diseases. So they could really distinguish between different disease states even from a, sing from a breath sample, from people breathing into a jar or a bag. So I'm like, well, these dogs, like, they're living in a different world than we are, yeah. you know, with their senses. And, like, yeah. we have all these fecal samples. We know which ones came from pregnant bears. Like, would it be possible to train a beagle or any dog to diagnose pregnancy just using fecal samples? So I started reaching out to different dog trainers, and I, I think it sounded a little out there because I didn't get responses from <laughs> many folks. That kind of surprises me. I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about, well, but let's try yes, it. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> So I, got, I did get a response from um, Nat Skogan out at Ironheart Detection Dogs out in Kansas, and he trains dogs for the police department. And he, you know, he's a, a very good trainer and very well, um, well-renowned trainer. And um, he was all for the conservation purposes of this, and he wanted to really help us out and see if we could actually do it. Um, so we sent him a whole bunch of samples to use for training. So he started off by sort of. Um, desensitizing the dogs to different smells. So we, we use male bears, we use juveniles, we use females that had been on contraceptives, we use known pregnancies. Um, and eventually they told me that the dog was working at like a 94% accuracy or 95% accuracy. Wow. I was like, oh, that's impressive. But um, I, I was a little skeptical. You know, I'm like, well, may, maybe he's like nodding by accident and doesn't realize he's doing it. And the dog's like picking up on some subtle cue. Um, so I was like, can, can I come out there and bring some samples with me and we'll do sort of like this blind trial. So we drove out there and I brought, I think it was like 15 samples from that Elvis had never seen before. They were just, I pulled them from our storage units and um, 
we presented the dog with the samples and he got a hundred percent of them correct. Wow. And I was like, wow, we're on to something here. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. So we, um, so, so remember we have 40,000 samples and the dog had probably been trained on about 500 samples total. Um, so I was like, well, let's reach out to all of our colleagues at different zoos and see it was coming up on polar bear, like denning and pregnancy season. And let's see if they want to just send us samples from their like unknown bears. And then we'll have Elvis, the dog, the beagle, tell us what these samples, if they're pregnant or not pregnant. Um, and then we'll try to predict pregnancy and see if these bears have cubs. Um, so the first year that we did it, Elvis tested 17 different females. Um, he predicted that one female was pregnant, but she didn't have cubs. So we thought, well, it's possible that maybe she lost it. Maybe she was pregnant. And the second year that we did it, um, Elvis predicted that one female was, but a different female had cubs. So we totally missed her totally. Oh, darn. Um, and so we were a little discouraged at that point. Part of the problem was probably that we only had one female each year have cubs. So it wasn't like he had a lot of room for positive yeah. identification. Um, but then I started reaching out to other dog trainers who kind of do this for a living, like the medical detection stuff. And they were saying that dogs need at least like 100 unique cases of a disease or condition to stop memorizing and start generalizing. So essentially what we think happened is we think that Elvis memorized the nine different pregnancies he was trained on. So he knew the sense of those pregnancies, but he couldn't generalize to new pregnancies. And the samples that I brought out there, the blind samples, they had come from those pregnancies because that's all we had. We didn't have that many pregnancies. So even though he never saw the samples before, he, he saw those pregnancies before and he had memorized ah, those. Wow. So that's sort of my working theory on it. But to me, it still says that there's something he was smelling because we could give him a sample from the same bear, collect it prior to estrus, and he wouldn't pick up the pregnancy there. So it was only when oh. that bear was pregnant. So it wasn't like he was learning individual bear odors. He knew it was something about that time period that we trained him on. But we Elvis can't talk, and we don't know. Yeah. What we're doing. <laughs> oh man, that's it's, fascinating. So have you kind of like stopped working with Elvis, or how is that? Yeah, so okay. Elvis he's retired now, so okay. he's now a companion to other dogs in training that are used for like bed bug training and <laughs> bomb detection training. But um, yeah, he's like I'm the polar bear dog. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably eleven or twelve by now, but wow. yeah, I think he's, he seems to be doing well. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah, it was a fun project, you know, working. And I think it brought a lot of um, attention to the fact that we don't have pregnancy tests for the species. And people hear like beagle and pregnancy detection, polar bear, and their, their ears perk up because it's a cool story. But I think most people have never even thought that we can't diagnose pregnancy in so many different wildlife mm -hmm. species. Yeah. Yeah. That's a question I get a lot as a zookeeper. People will say like, well, can't you just have them pee on a stick like right. humans do? And it's like, no, it's not quite that easy. Yeah, we wish it was. <laughs> maybe one day we'll get there. So a lot of your research is focused on non-invasive techniques, correct? Like. Mm -hmm. Do you do any testing with blood? Are you able to collect blood or anything like that? I know obviously feces is a huge part of it. But. Yeah, so when I first started in the field, people, it was fecal collections or nothing for a lot of the species that we work with that you can't get your hands on. Um, but in the last five to ten years, so many people are training their animals for voluntary blood collection, which it seems amazing. And you, So these polar bears, they will stick their little arm into this training chute and they're desensitized to the clippers, to the shaving, to the putting betadine solution on their paws, um, to the needle stick, and then staying still for a blood sample. So um, it seems like it could be a possibility now to start using blood more and more, and that's our most recent initiative is starting to look at hormones and biomarkers in a blood sample. So right now we're collecting um, blood from all different, apparently um, veterinarians across the U.S. have tons of blood, bare blood stored in their freezers long term, <laughs> back from like the 80s. Wow. Okay. And Rather than just throw them out, they're happy to share their samples with us. So we're able to use those samples for some of our studies. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, the more data, the better. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so is that, like, what's the most current project? Or is that a, the right way to say it? Like, the beagle dog sniffing, that was a project, right? Is there a way? Yeah, no, that's okay. correct. Yeah, so we've done the beagle um, project. We've done um, fecal proteins project. So looking at proteins rather than steroids in a fecal sample. So that, that human pregnancy test, that's based on a protein, whereas progesterone is a steroid. Um, so I'm, I was trying to focus more on the protein side of things, but didn't find anything that seemed to work. Okay. Um, so now we're going to start looking at blood, and there's so many more things that we can measure in a blood sample. Um, hormones are more stable in blood generally, you know, they're, they're frozen faster. Um, so they're not laying out an exhibit for 12 hours yeah. and exposed to sunlight and insects and stuff like that. Um, so we're hopeful that maybe there's something in a blood sample that might give us the answers we're looking for. And um, even if it's not the pregnancy diagnosis, the pregnancy test that we want, there's still so many other hormones that we know nothing about in polar bears. Um, so things that just make their reproductive cycles tick and what, how does, what controls this embryonic diapause that we're seeing and just seeing what hormones look like in a healthy, fertile female versus maybe a female that hasn't gotten pregnant or produced cubs. 
Mm. I just, I think I would have a really hard time with these projects have to last a certain amount of time before you even get any sort of clue or answer or if it's going to work out. Like, how do you have patience for, like, for example, the ultrasound, I was like, I don't want to wait another week. I, I like, let's do this now. Let's, let's do it now. Like, I don't have the patience for that. Like, is that hard for you? Yeah, Are you used it, to it? It is. Yeah. Sometimes you want the answer immediately. Um, but then sometimes it's worth the wait too. And we definitely have, so right now we have like several projects going on. So we have lots of ways to keep busy while okay. we're waiting for like one of them to pan mm. out or not. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so we're doing the blood stuff and hopefully in a year or two, we'll have some answers on that. Um, but we're also doing like artificial insemination procedures in polar bears and trying to optimize those techniques. And we're doing like semen collection and cryopreservation so that we can store genetics long-term from valuable males. Um, and I'm also working with red pandas. We have this new project um, going on where we're trying to use changes in temperature to monitor reproduction. So we're using that infrared thermography technology um, to see if temperature changes might be signs of when they're in estrus or ovulating mm -hmm. or when that embryo might implant into the uterus. And maybe that might help us determine if they're pregnant or not. Wow. That's awesome. And you mentioned you're trying to develop, I guess, refine your techniques for AI, artificial insemination in polar bears. Mm -hmm. You did one of the first polar bear artificial inseminations, correct? Yeah. So back in 2012, we did the first, to our knowledge, polar bear artificial insemination. And we've done about... 15 of them since. Um, to date, none of them have been successful. Okay. Um, what do you think the reasoning is? So I think the reasoning is, is that all of the fertile, the young fertile females that are likely to get pregnant are in breeding situations. So we're not asked to AI those. We're asked uh, to AI the 22 year old female that has been with a male for 10 years and has never produced cubs. And hmm. she's pretty unlikely to get pregnant. Um, and we're sort of like the Hail Mary that, that's brought in okay. and can, can we give it a shot? Um, so we always say yes, but it would be nice if we could work on a population of like young fertile females to really refine our techniques. Yeah. How many, do you know the population in zoos? Do you, like how many fertile females are there that are not with a male that maybe you could start that project? Not many. Yeah. Yeah. And right now the priority is to make polar bear cubs because we don't have enough to maintain the population. So priority is given to the, to the young females to be placed in breeding situations and it's not my goal. I don't necessarily want to do AIs. Like, we do them because we have to. I'd rather see animals breed by natural means and get pregnant because yeah. their chances are so much better with a male than they are with me. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a nice tool to have it for certain is. situations. Yeah. yeah. And it would be beneficial, too. It would minimize animal transfer. So if we knew that AI worked, you know, 80% of the time, it would be easy to collect a sample from a male and bring it to a female at another zoo and not have to move the male yeah. at all. Mm. Um, so it would be useful for, for that purpose, too. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm still fascinated by your work. I don't know. <laughs> so much of it's mind blowing. It. I, <laughs> I don't understand how you have like a, a sample of blood and then you, like, where do you go from there? What do you start testing? What do you test it against? Yeah. Like, so right now, um, our first focus is we want to learn about the hormones that we know a lot about in other species, but we don't know what they look like in polar bears. So what are their normal concentrations? Um, so AMH was the first hormone that we started looking at. That's anti-mullerian hormone. And that's a good indicator of ovarian reserve or fertility, even in humans. And we know a lot about what AMH looks in a lot of other species, but we know nothing about it in polar bears. Um, so we had an intern working with us for a while, and she um, measured AMH in about 100 different blood samples. And she showed that AMH, it's, um, it starts off high when bears are younger, as we would expect, but then it drops um, almost back to baseline around the time that they're 18 or 20. So we're thinking maybe we can use AMH as a sort of a fertility test, not a pregnancy test, but a fertility test to see which females are more likely to produce cubs than others. So maybe sense. we can focus our efforts on putting those females in breeding situations um, versus the infertile females. Wow, that'll be yeah. helpful for sure. Yeah. So we yeah. So that's as a starting point. We tend to look at hormones rather than try to discover some unknown biomarker that'll give us all the answers. Um, we usually start with monitoring or measuring hormones that have already been characterized in other species and just seeing what they look like seasonally between males and females um, over an animal's lifetime um, in polar bears. Wow. Interesting. So obviously a lot of your research is focusing on like the female side of it because the female is who is getting pregnant. But is there any data on like the males, a better time to breed or reproductive seasonality for males versus females? Yeah, so they're highly seasonal species. So they breed um, in the springtime, so like February, March, April. And we've monitored testosterone concentrations in, in fecal samples from a whole bunch of the males in the population. And we know that testosterone drives sperm production. Um, and we found that testosterone is higher in the weeks leading up to breeding season and then during breeding season. Then afterwards it drops off and it goes back to baseline the rest of the year. So mm. what that tells us is that males look 
pretty much exactly as we expected them to. So they have this high testosterone when they need it, when they when we need sperm to be available, um, then it's low the rest of the year. And then we've also done semen collections in a lot of the males because, you know, the conversation came up, maybe the males aren't producing a viable sample. Maybe they're the reason for the low fertility rates. But it seems that all the males that we've examined, um, we've been able to see that they have sperm that's swimming in a straight line and that doesn't have two heads. It looks morphologically <laughs> normal. So we don't have real reason to think that males are the problem. Hmm. It's so tough with an endangered animal in the wild and not super common in zoos. I... It's that's a hard. It's hard. I'm sure. It's, it's it is. Is yeah. it hard to f keep the hope, or is it easy for you? I wonder the same thing. Like science is obviously a lot. Of, by nature, science is a lot of failures, and hopefully you've learned something from each failure and are able to succeed in the future. But I feel like it's got to be frustrating, right? Yeah, I like a challenge, so it's, it hasn't been. <laughs> yeah, I haven't lost my motivation for it yet. That's good. Um, yeah, we're still we're struggling with the pregnancy test of how to you know figure out if these bears are pregnant or not. But technology changes so rapidly yeah. mm -hmm. so technologies that are available now um, weren't available 10 years ago and there'll be new technologies available in five to ten more years that might give us answers that we can't get right now I love that mm -hmm. do you know if polar bears in the wild are having issues with breeding or is it mostly just like habitat loss and yeah so the habitat loss contributes to lower fertility rates and poor body condition in females um, but polar bears in the wild do experience pseudo pregnancies okay. we know that so we'll see females go into dens um, and some will emerge without cubs. We don't know if these females lost their cubs in the dens or if they were truly pseudo-pregnant. But it would be really interesting to do a comparison of the wild populations versus zoo bears to see how they compare. Yeah, that will be interesting. Have you been to see polar bears in the wild? Yeah, I've been up to Churchill, Manitoba, which is the polar bear capital of the world, to see them from um, a tundra buggy. So that was a really neat experience, just seeing them out. And, you know, it's a good reminder of how tough they are because there's nothing out there and they're just walking out to a horizon of ice. You know, there's no shade. There's no obvious food to us. They know there's food out there, but <laughs> it's, um, you know, and it's minus 30 degrees. It's really cold and really harsh. Life, you walk around in this harsh environment just to fi hopefully find food and then do it all over again. Yeah. yeah. How often do they need to hunt? So I think bears in the wild, I think they catch like two seals a week would okay. be ideal. Don't quote me on that, but it's not every single day. Yeah. Um, but usually they'll catch us, it depends on the size of the bear too, so females wouldn't need to eat. A female that's half the size of a male, she might be 500 pounds, where a male might be 1,000 or 1,200 pounds, he's gonna need to eat a lot more than a smaller mm. female. So he would probably need to catch more seals or bigger seals. Mm. And you mentioned that this is a thing for all bears. Like, do you think if you come up with the pregnancy test for polar bears, it'll work for others? That's my hope, okay. yeah. So we're hoping to branch out and do some of this research with other bear species as well. Um, so Andean bears, for example, um, they have been ultrasounded and confirmed pregnant by ultrasound because they don't go into that denning, thing, ah, denning okay. mode the polar bears go into. So we know it's possible to do in bear species, um, just maybe not polar bears. Mm. Interesting. You work with polar bears, but are they your favorite animal? What's your favorite animal? That's my favorite wildlife species. Sure. Yeah, I think, cool. they're, I think they're probably my favorite wildlife species. Okay. I spend a lot of time thinking about them. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you ask wildlife species, do you mean well, was, domestic? Well, or do you have a different... Dogs are probably my okay. favorite oh, yeah. animal, just a domestic pet dog. Yeah. Um, you can't go wrong with a pet no. dog. So yeah. I know you kind of like half stumbled into the polar bear research because you didn't really know what you were getting yourself into. Do you wish you had started something else or are you happy with your path you've taken? No, I'm very happy with okay. it. Yeah, so all my training was in livestock. So I did my master's with beef cattle and my PhD was with pigs. Um, I love cows and pigs because I've spent so much time working with them. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad that I landed working with such a weird, challenging species, especially like, from a reproductive standpoint, they're really challenging and, you know, it's right up my alley. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Are there other polar bear research scientists out there doing the same thing as you? Or There's a lot of other polar bear research scientists. Um, so people are interested in studying things like energetics and nutrition, um, diet, metabolism, um, a lot of field scientists studying their ecology and denning habits. Um, there, there are some other people studying reproductive physiology, and we all talk and collaborate and sort of know who each other, you know, okay, it's just, yeah, yeah we all it's got to be a small world, so I was wondering if you did. Yeah. yeah. What would you yeah. say is your favorite part of the job? My favorite part of the job, um, participating in the procedures are, are fun, like the AI procedures, you know, there's definitely an adrenaline rush when you're doing something you've planned for the last month. I can't imagine. You know, and it yeah. finally comes to that day. Um, so I think that that's always a highlight. Awesome. Do you ever get nervous in the middle of the procedure? Like, I just, 
I feel like surgeons and people working with that have to have such steady hands. I'd be jittery. I'd be like... <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. even the vet techs who are taking blood are doing, like, vaccine injections or something. I'm like, are you nervous? Because I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say I get nervous. I'm always... I think I do all the worrying leading up to the procedure, so... I think I get it all out then. So I like in my mind, I've already gone through everything that could go wrong and I have a backup plan. I usually have a backup plan for the backup plan because <laughs> you get one shot, you know, at these. Yeah, so yeah. when we've done like artificial insemination procedures using like fresh semen, for example, we always bring frozen semen as a backup just in case we don't get the fresh sample that we want or in case we get a sample, but then it crashes real quickly. So we always want to have backup plans because once an animal's anesthetized for something, you know, you don't want to you want to get your money's worth out of that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, you have to take advantage of those moments because you're obviously not going to immobilize a polar bear, an animal that big, very frequently, so it doesn't happen often. Right, and usually when a polar bear is immobilized, there's a, a long list of research projects that they're collecting oh, data on. Yeah, so that. sometimes they're taking... Um, so I went to one procedure, and they were taking ear measurements of the bear because they were interested in um, fitting radio transmitters that fit in the ear rather than radio collars around the oh. neck. Um, sometimes um, they're doing this burr in the fur study right now, so they're trying to find these transmitters that attach to the animal's fur rather than these big collars that they used to wear. Part of the problem with tracking polar bears is that male bears, their necks are bigger than their heads, so they can't wear collars. Mm. So we're trying to find better ways to track males over time um, that are minimally invasive. Mm. So they, they test these things on zoo bears. And um, zoo bears are great because we have easy access to them, and they're usually immobilized for physical exams, you know, once every year or two. So we can sort of learn a lot about polar bear physiology from the bears that we have in zoos and then use that to learn more about wild populations. Yeah, and that is such an important role about bears in human care is we can learn from them and we can adapt what we're doing in the wild and help how we save them where they live mm -hmm. based on what we learn in captivity. But... It is funny you say they slip off because you kind of picture the silhouette of a polar bear. They're so slender and sleek, and males have those little narrow heads, but the <laughs> big broad shoulders and everything. Yeah, <laughs> and their necks are um, so they when they dive into breathing holes to catch seals. That's when those really long necks come in handy. Mm. So those long streamlined necks, and they could reach down further in the ice and snatch out an unsuspecting seal that way. Cool. What I wonder if that seal. I know, right? <laughs> Gosh, head to head. Yeah, that would be a terrible way to go, I think. Yeah, definitely. So are there any other projects you would like to talk about or anything we've missed? Yeah, so one of the most recent projects that we wrapped up, or that we're wrapping up, that isn't necessarily polar bear focused, but it focuses on a lot of species, um, was a collaboration with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. So we worked with some researchers um, up there, Michelle Shero and um, her graduate student, Caroline Rusidlo. And we were analyzing the use of infrared thermography or thermal imaging to see if we could non-invasively measure animal respiration rate and heart rate. So what we were doing is we were trying to look for changes in the skin to see if that could correlate with heart rates that we got by stethoscope. Um, and it seems to work in about 70% of mammals, which is wow. really neat. Yeah. So what this That's means awesome. is that in theory, rather than you know trying to take put a stethoscope on an animal, which could be stressful and measuring its heart rate that way, in theory, we could fly a drone over a colony or a herd of wildebeest and see what their heart rates and respiration rates are and compare that year to year and that could be an indicator of their metabolism and how they're um, responding to potentially changing environments or environmental stressors. That's so cool. There's so much coming out. Yeah. Like like you said, the technology is changing constantly. Yeah. And we got some really cool images. You have a thermography, is that the correct word? Mm -hmm. Thermography camera. Yeah. That, you know, it takes the different, like the purples and the yellows and the greens and the reds. And yeah. we got to do some of those or try it with some of our animals. And that was fun for us. Yeah. So are you going to continue doing that? Or is there an animal around the zoo that you plan to work with the most? Or yeah. So right now, well so the sort of the heart rate and respiration rate part of the project has wrapped up, but now we want to see if we can use this technology for reproductive monitoring. Okay. So the red pandas, um, right now our red panda care team has been amazing and they're taking pictures of our female red pandas um, almost every day throughout breeding season through cubbing season. And I want to see if we have temperature changes around the time that breeding was observed and then again around the time that embryo implantation occurs. So mm -hmm. red pandas also are seasonal breeders, they have delayed implantation, they can have pseudo-pregnancies. Um, there was a study done with brown bears where they implanted this temperature sensor into the females' abdomens, and they oh. found that the females that produced cubs, their temperature shot up by about 4 degrees Celsius around the time that embryo implantation occurred. Wow. Um, oh, but the females that didn't produce cubs, um, their temperature didn't change. So it's not feasible to put abdominal implants into every species that we want to monitor. Mm -hmm. So, if, But what if we can just point a camera at the animal's face and measure the temperature yeah. in their eyeball and see if that changes over time? 
So maybe this will give us an indicator <coughs> of whether or not pregnancy is happening or not happening. That's insane. Like, just the non-invasive techniques that you're able to come up with to monitor these things is fascinating. Yeah. I would have never thought, you know, I, I feel like since COVID, thermal imaging has become important to everyone because we all take our <laughs> temperatures and everything and monitor constantly. But, like, you wouldn't think to turn that around and use it to monitor animals. Yeah, like. we're hoping it works. So we're doing <laughs> our three female red pandas here at Cincinnati. So we have one female, and she's produced cubs most years. Um, so hopefully she'll have cubs this year. And we're also doing weekly ultrasounds on her. So we're going to pair the ultrasound data with fecal hormone data with the infrared data and see if we can detect that change, that shift, um, and see if we can use it as a pregnancy marker. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Super, super cool. You're doing so much. I know. Oh, thank you. Oh, my gosh. Gotta be yeah. busy. <laughs> yes, I can't even imagine. Uh, do you have a quiz for us, Mark? I do have some quiz trivia, Erin, if you're up for it. I'm up for it. Yeah, I don't know if awesome. I'm up for it. Let's do it. We're talking to a polar bear scientist, so I figure polar bear trivia is only fitting today. Perfect. I'll know <laughs> <laughs> So we've got only four questions today. Just four. So a pretty quick one today. Question one. What color is a polar bear's skin? It's black, it's, right? It's black, yeah. Yay. It's black. I'm sure Erin's been up close and personal with it. She's actually seen it. But, you know, everyone thinks polar bears are white. Their fur is actually just translucent. Translucent. It just reflects the light and appears white, but their skin underneath is black. Exactly. Yeah, and that helps them retain heat, we think. Yeah, retain heat. I've, I read, you might correct me if I'm wrong, I read that polar bears actually have more issues with overheating while they're active than they do with being, being too, too cold. cold. Yeah. Wow. I, I would believe that. Yeah. Um, they're so well insulated. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're, yeah, that they probably overheat. Which speaks certain. to the adaptations they have. My goodness. So like, their skin is black, but their fur is translucent. Yes. Where does the white come in? The, the white, the translucent fur reflects the light and it appears white. It's just... Wow, alright. I think I knew that and I've heard that. I obviously knew the black skin part, but it just doesn't make sense when you that look at it. Why would it white. Yeah, white? they still yeah. appear white. Cool. I know. Fascinating. Alright. What percent of polar bear hunts are successful? Wow. We I'm going to be guessing on this one. Hunting is very important for them, obviously. They're predators. But in being in such a harsh environment, there really aren't many options for them to hunt. Most of them specialize with seals, but what percent of their hunts are successful? And even like a lion is only 30%. Is it 30%? So that's probably higher than I would have guessed, but I don't know. Uh, I'm going to say low. I'm going to say 10%. That's a total guess. Honestly, that was what I was going to guess too. I hope it's higher for their sake. You guys are on the right track. It's very low. It's about 2 to 3% <gasps> our oh current estimates. Yeah. They will also scavenge and they'll eat eggs. They're kind of opportunistic, but the majority of their diet is going to come from seals and only 2 to 3% of hunts are successful. Wow. Which, That's a lot of energy expended to not catch or be so, successful. So that was something I read. I didn't realize this. That's one of their adaptations why they wait at the seal holes is so they're not expending uh, too much energy. Yeah, because that was my first thought too. Yeah. It's like, how can you survive yeah. if you're only successful 2% of your hunts? But because they just wait. So and they really out. just need patience. <laughs> yeah. I, I did hear from a researcher one time that they'll position themselves with the sun behind them so that the seals can't see that. It like sort of blinds the seals if they look in that direction. Oh. So they're kind of strategic in where they place themselves around the breathing hole, too. Like Super as smart. the seal comes up for air, like it's positioned. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's wow. insane. Very Did you cool. see any hunts when you were no. seeing the wild? No. That would be pretty incredible. That'd though. be insane, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, on to question number three. How much does a polar bear cub weigh? Oh. Well, isn't there something to this? They're like... Anne's <laughs> nodding. I think she, I think she knows it. Something about butter. Then they the same as a stick of butter. <laughs> but no, um, yeah, a pound. Is two guess. to three pounds? Yeah, it's right between about a pound and a half to two pounds. Okay. This is an average cub. So they come out very, very small. And is there something else to it? Like, do they... It's not like a wallaby where they, like, crawl up no. into a pouch, obviously. But is there something else that's... Yeah, so they have the... I think it's the largest ratio discrepancy in maternal to fetal weight other than marsupials. Okay. Mm. So based on mom's body mass to what they weigh, um, they're closer to, like, a wallaby than they would be to another mammal. It's, it's crazy, but I guess they spend then all this time growing outside of the mother while they're denned up and they don't come out of 
from underground for like months, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So they're probably three or four months old by the time they come out. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that's a little over a pound. A little. That's a, insane to me. Like you said, the discrepancy there between what's a, a female polar bear weigh seven hundred fifty to a thousand pounds probably give birth this one one pound one yeah. two pound cub. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys are on fire right now. Question number four. <laughs> I think this one might trip you up. All right, we've all seen the commercials of the Coca-Cola polar bear. In what year did the Coca-Cola polar bear first appear? We all know I'm terrible at <laughs> history in years. Uh, I have no idea. Um, I'm going to say the 80s. 19... I'm going earlier. I'm saying. I'm trying to keep a poker face up. No reaction. 1952. 52 and 80. You guys are both a little late. Started way back in the 20s. Wow. 1922. Coca Cola shared a printed ad in a French newspaper of the polar bear. Yeah, the ad's kind of wild. It's a polar bear. He's he's feeding the sun. Coke, like not a polar bear's son, like S U N, the, the star in the sky. He's giving a yeah. little drink. Bizarre, he's giving the son a drink, yeah. But I was interested to see, though, doing some research about it, Coca Cola actually does support WWF in their polar bear conservation efforts. They donate a lot of money to polar bear conservation. Good. So, As yeah. they should. Yeah. They, I'm sure they've gotten a lot of money of the polar bear advertising <laughs> over the years, but they're giving some of it back, so that's always good. Good to know, but, yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I wasn't as bad as I thought I would be today. No, not bad at all. Good. Not These are all. good questions. But do we have anything else for Erin while she's here? Yes, what can I do? Is there something you do in your life? Or I'm sure you do many things. You're helping <laughs> save polar bears. So what's something the average human could do? I think something that everyone can do that costs zero money is when you go to a grocery store, um, all the produce and things that you buy, um, there's always the option to put it in a plastic bag. So I would say just put it in your cart and wash it when you get home or bring a bag to put it in because it's one way that it doesn't cost anyone anything that can save the environment. Definitely. Yeah, you see so many of those bags being used and it's like, wh why? You don't really really need to. Half of the stuff you're going to wash or peel anyway. So right. that's a really good one and super simple. Um, you mentioned bring your own bags. I Yeah, it's, it does cost money, but I bought like little reusable mesh bags and yeah. that way it does help. I won't lie, you know, if you buy like 10 jalapenos when you put it on the conveyor belt they don't go everywhere but yes you can have your own and reuse them or even just bring a regular like little tote bag or something for all of your fruits and veggies yeah, yeah. so good one easy one definitely. i'll say that's easy enough for every single person to do when you go to the grocery store it cuts down on our waste it's a win-win right? definitely yeah. less yeah. plastic for sure yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here yeah. and telling us about all of your projects. I, I learned so much. Yeah. And I really appreciate how you explained things and made it something that we could understand. Yeah. And even as people that work here, like <laughs> we hear like like bits and pieces of what you're doing or what crew is doing, but half the time, I won't lie, I'm like I just don't understand. It, it. goes way over my head. It yeah. goes over. <laughs> well, thank you guys yes, for inviting for sure. me. This is fun. Yes, yeah. we had a great time having you, and we'll. Um, be looking forward to our ultrasounds with BB and sharing with our guests also. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm sure we'll have some updates as we move along with BB through her pregnancy. Absolutely, but. we'll get lots of cute little baby videos. Fiona yeah. 2.0 videos. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> not ready for it. All right, well, thank you, Aaron. Yes, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening out there. Take care.